Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Are y'all ready? Hey, do me a favor. Can, can we just be old school for a minute? Um, would you do me a favor? Isaac, keep playing with me if you don't mind. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Man, man God's word is to be honored. And uh, I don't know, I grew up at a church. We used to, we used to meet like 17 times a week. We, we had uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. We had Bible studies. We had all, all these things. But when, when my pastor growing up, we'd get together. He would always say, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to be in, in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 14. And um, as, I, as, I, as I get there, I, I got a text this week from a friend of mine. He pastors in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he sent me a meme. And uh, it said, if 2020 was a candle, a scented candle, and it was a dumpster fire. And, and 2020 has been a mess, hasn't it? And, and I think we can look across our land and we can see politically we're divided. Racially, we've been divided. Uh, we look at COVID. We look at all these things. I know. Uh, people in this body have had health issues and we've lost loved ones and there's been financial things and there's all these things that ha- have happened. And, and I sent him a thing back. I said, man, if I had a remote control for 2020, I just would have skipped it. I would have. I, I just would have hit this like next. And then God reminded me of something. You don't have to like the season that you're in. You don't. But don't overlook it either. God does more in chaos. He does more in uncertainty than I believe he ever does in blessing. And there's been some some real principles, I think even for our church, that during this pandemic, when we didn't meet for 30 weeks or whatever it was, that God began to speak to us. And I'm so excited that we're getting back to our roots. And I'm believing for revival. I'm believing for a move of God. I am, I am. And, and, and we're going to build the way that I think God intended us to build. And if we're just real honest, we've, we've gotten it wrong. And I'm just talking about the church as a whole. This ain't even in my notes. We, we, we thought to build a good church, you had to have a program or a system or a structure or the slickest worship or the best preachers. That's not the way that Jesus built. It's not. When Jesus wanted to build his church, he didn't find somebody that can preach like Bishop Jakes. You know what he said? Give me some people like the ones in front of me who are willing to go out and do for others what I've done for them. It's called discipleship. And I, I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about Discipleship. I, I know that's not like a sexy topic. Like nobody wants to talk about this. But it's the way that Jesus builds his people. And it's the way that his people builds his church. And I just want to spend a few minutes talking about this discipleship, the process of becoming a disciple. And Jesus does have a process. So thank you for standing with me. But here it is, Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. It says this, it says a large crowd was following Jesus and he turned around and said to them, 
if you want to be my disciple? It's the question I think he's asking all of us today. Do you want to be his disciple? Do you? Are you sure? Are you sure? Come on, do you, come on, my beard, help me out. Do you want to be his disciple? Okay. Then if you do, here's what he says. It's about to get tough. You must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the costs. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down and with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against them. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Verse 33, I want to key in on this morning. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything that you own. Do you still want to say yes to that question? Do you want to be his disciple? I'm glad you're saying yes. So that's why this morning I'm going to preach a message to you simply entitled, The Cost and the Cause of Discipleship. The Cost and the Cause of Discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. God, I pray that you hide me behind your cross. God, don't let my words come out or my thoughts come out. God, let it be your words. Let it penetrate our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, may we all leave this place changed individuals. May we never be the same in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. And amen. You may be seated. Uh, Just help me this morning to let me know that you know what I'm talking about. Everybody say discipleship. Say it one more time, discipleship. Now, I, I know that we're in the Bible Belt in the South. I know that you're all in church on a Sunday morning. Uh, I, I do know that, uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but how many of you would just, by a show of hands, say that uh, you are a follower of Christ? Come on, if, you, if, if you're not ashamed to admit you're a follower of Christ, I think all of us in this room would probably um, say that we're a follower of Christ, or at least associate with the teachings of Jesus. And, and I would boldly make this statement that the majority of churches in America are filled with people who would profess the same thing, that most churches that are meeting right now in America Uh, Christian churches would have people in those Christian churches that say that, yes, they are followers of Jesus. Everybody say followers. In fact, 71% of Americans, not just churchgoers, but 71% of Americans, according to the Barner Research Group, claim that they follow the teachings of Jesus. Now, I think we can get real excited about that assertion that 71% in America claim to be followers of Jesus, but you have to understand the dichotomy of that statement. If you go back to our text in Luke chapter 14, it says a large crowd was following Jesus and he turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to understand that in the context of the people that were around Jesus, there were two groups. There were two groups in our text. There were two groups in that day. There are two groups in this building. There's two groups in New Iberia. There's two groups in America. There's two groups that I'm talking to. The first group he was talking to was the crowd. But understand, Jesus turns to the crowd and tells the crowd, you don't have an opportunity to stay in the crowd. You have an opportunity to become my disciple. There's two groups that Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the crowd, and he's also talking to the disciples. Now, when it comes to followers of Jesus, 
Jesus always made a distinction between the crowds and the disciples. Everybody say crowd. Everybody say disciple. Let's break these two groups down. Everyone in this room fits in one of these two categories. The crowd is a term that describes this huge umbrella of anybody who associates with Christianity. It's people who follow the teachings of Christ. It's people who identify themselves as Christians. It's people who attend church. It's people who are part of denominations. It's just the crowd. It's this huge umbrella. It's, it's an association that they like something they heard. Uh, they adhere to some of the teachings. They even self-identify as followers. And when you ask people about uh, their spirituality, a lot of times you'll hear from the crowd, you'll hear things like where they belong or where they attend. Uh, I, I attend OSC. Uh, I belong to the Catholic Church. I belong to the Baptist Church. I belong to the Methodist Church. You can fill in the blank. They'll even tell you what they believe. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you about their belief system. They'll tell you about an ideology. They'll tell you about a moral code. But the majority of time, the reason um, people are part of a crowd is because they expect something from Jesus. They expect God to do something that they can't do for themselves. If I'm being real honest, that's the way that I got in church. I, I, got, I got saved in the, the, the winter of 1998. That was 22 years ago. I was a 20-year-old kid. I came to church. I came into a service just like this because I was at a broken point in my life. I needed God to do something for me that I couldn't do for myself. Now, how many would say that you became part of the crowd by a similar scenario, that you were looking for something, you were looking for peace, you were looking for something uh, in your pocket, you were looking for something with your kids. It didn't matter, like, but there was something that was void in your life and you needed to find something. And that's the way you got to church. Probably the majority of people who find themselves in a crowd came that way. By the way, 87 scriptures talk about Jesus in the crowd. It says the, the crowd followed him. Um, it'll say things like a great multitude pressed in around them. And John chapter 6 is one of those, and it says this. It says a large crowd followed him, and then there's this word because. It's the reason I came. I became part of the crowd because... I was missing something in my life. I was broke, busted, and disgusted. I need something new in my life. I needed Jesus. I don't know what I need, but that's the key word, because. Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So the crowd initially follows Jesus because of what he can do for them. Because he can heal them. That's why they were following. Hey, I heard this guy, this man from Galilee is healing people. I got to see it. So that's why the crowd was following. I heard this man was giving out fish. He fed like 5,000 with a little lunchbox. I, I got to see it. So people were entering in the crowd because of what Jesus could do for them. Now, listen to me. That line of thinking is acceptable when you're seeking. But once you're found, that can no longer be your motive to serve him. It's okay to meet Jesus that way. But then there has to be a shift from what Jesus would call the crowd. He would call the crowd out and say, hey, guys. I know you following me, but now it's time to go a little deeper. He would call them to be disciples. 
By the way, Jesus never used the term Christian. He never called somebody to be a Christian. That word Christian was not used until 20 years later in the book of Acts when there was a group. It was a derogatory term used for the followers of Jesus in Antioch. The word Christian means little Christ. So it was a derogatory term like, look at all these people over there trying to be like Christ. Especially a little Christ walking around. Look at it. <laughs> it was a derogatory term. Jesus never used that term. The term that he did use and the term that was used throughout the New Testament was 261 times. So the assertion is that when somebody would repent and become born again, they would automatically become a disciple. That's what Jesus was calling people to be. He didn't want people to just sit on a pew. He didn't want people just to come on a Sunday. He didn't want people to come and see the spectacle. That's not what he was about. He was never about the crowd. He was always about the disciple. Disciples, not crowds. In fact, Jesus probably wouldn't be a good preacher today because every time the crowd got big, he didn't try to get it bigger. He actually tried to thin it out. There was one time in John chapter 6 when the crowd got so big and Jesus looked at the crowd and said, Hey, if you want to be my disciple, the next step, you got to do something. You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. And there was people in the crowd that said, hey, I don't think I want to be part of this church anymore. And they got up and they left because the teaching was too hard. Jesus actually looks at the crowd while the people are leaving and says, is there anybody else that wants to join them? Jesus's goal was to get people out of the crowd and into discipleship. Why? Because the crowd follows Jesus because of what he can do for them. Disciples follow Jesus despite the cost. Do you still want to be a disciple? I'm, I'm going to give you four characteristics, I believe, of every disciple. Now, I was making a list as I was putting this together, and I, I ended up coming up with 11 of, what, of attributes of every disciple. Now, I don't have time to preach 11 points see today. Okay, so I'm going to give you four. I think these are the four most important, and I think they're the four hardest to do. And so if you can get these four down, I think we're going to be cooking with some, some, some oil, okay? So, so number one, write this down. By the way, this is, this is not um, like feel-good preaching I'm about to do, okay? So if you, if you really wanted to be encouraged, um, just go visit with Pastor Paul afterwards. He'll give you a hug. Here we go. Number one, if you want to be a disciple, realize this. Disciples embrace self-denial. Disciples embrace self-denial. Now, this is so countercultural to the Christianity that most of us know and love. Because we've created a Christianity that makes our way of living superior sometimes to the one that we've even served. So we've made it about us. We, we've put contingencies upon Jesus. Like, if you serve Jesus... If you follow Jesus, you'll be blessed. If you'll follow Jesus, all your problems will go away. If you follow Jesus, you, you know, you'll get the parking spot at the Piggly Wiggly. Like we, we, we've just put all of these attachments as, as that's become our motive to following him. Like, like if you just put Jesus first, you'll be the head in every situation. Never, never the tail. And, 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 and the reality is that sounds good, and that preaches good, and that tweets good, and that looks real good on Instagram. The problem is that's not the gospel. It's not 
the gospel. The gospel is not me-centric. And, and, and I know most of us, we love Jesus, and most of us, we love God. And, but, but, but the reality is that we have some self-defined priorities. So, uh, yes, we love God, but we, we want to love God, and we want God to bless us. And so even our prayers, y'all, become so me-centric. Think about it. All the prayers that we pray. God, just help me. God, just bless me. God, just fix this. God, just do this. God, just do it. Do it. And do it. And yes. And amen. And we quote promises about blessing us and that's not the way that it works because if Jesus says if you really want to be my disciple this thing's going to cost you and it's not going to feel good he says it look go back to verse 26 if you want to be my disciple you must by comparison hate everybody else your father and your mother and your wife and your children now is he really saying hate your mom and them no come on who come on who loves your mom how many, how, many, how many love your brothers? And, yes, I love my mama, okay? I'm going to call my mama today and just tell her how much I love her. He's not saying to hate your mom. He's not saying to hate your brother. He's saying, by comparison, your love for God will make your love for them seem like hatred. Because if I end up loving them more than I love God, then God's not really my God. They are. He's saying you must be willing to make the most important things in your life even secondary to God and his word. Isn't this how he picked the 12 disciples? Didn't he ask them to do some of these things? Think, think about when he, when, he, when he picked the 12. Let's go back. Book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake for some fishermen. Now, these weren't guys that sit from a point on a weekend trying to catch some crabs. This was their livelihood. It was their way of living. It's how they made money, okay? He says to them, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish your people. Check this out, verse 20. And at once they left their nests and followed him. Going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their daddy. Watch this. Their father preparing the nets, and Jesus called them. They jump out the boat. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. If you understand, if you can see the swiftness and the boldness of their decision to be a disciple, it says immediately at once they left their nets, they left their boat, they left their father. What are they saying? Yes, those things were important. It was their livelihood. It was their family. But they had the ability to say that even those things I think are the most important in my life, they're going to come, become secondary to following Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. That's what being a disciple is all about. But what, yet we live in this world in cultural Christianity where we've made it all about me. Let me help you. It's not about you. I'll say it again. I'm going to say it for the people in the back. It's not about you. It's not about me. Come on, it's not about you. Christianity is not about you. It's not about us. It's about one person. Let, let me help illustrate this. I'm going to take you back to the greatest movie of all times, at least in my lifehood. This movie came out in 1984. Come on, any kids in the 80s, kids of the 80s, let's unite. Okay, 1984, I was six years old. Six. I'm 42 now, Okay. This movie came out in 84. I went to the Northgate Mall. How many of y'all remember the North, when they had the Northgate Cinema at the North, on the up, it's, it's not even Northside anymore, it's Upper Lafayette. Okay, 
And uh, this movie came out, and it was about this kid. He just wasn't any kid. He was the karate kid. I've watched this movie, I believe, about 377 times. I can quote every word from this movie. I've never noticed what I'm about to show you till about three weeks ago, and I'm going to pause it right where I noticed something. Let's play this clip from the All Valley 18U Karate Tournament between Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence. Winner. He's the winner. He's the champion. Everybody's coming out to congratulate him. He just won. Nobody thought he could do it, and he wins. And let's pause it right there. I've never noticed this in my life. For a millisecond, you see this dude right here? White shirt, y'all see him? Little cotton top. Hair looks like a Q-tip. Curly hair. I've watched this movie my whole life. I've never seen that dude in the movie. Till the last time I, I saw it, and I paused it. And then I went to the end in the credits to see who he was. He's not even mentioned. Like it doesn't, he doesn't have a name. It doesn't even see, it doesn't even say weird dude with mouth open and curly hair. Like it get, he's not even in the credits. But I can guarantee you what happened in 1984 when this movie came out. Homeboy right there went down and got the VHS, put it in his, VA, his VCR and put it on the big screen, which was 19 inches back in 84, called all of his friends on a rotodial phone, said, come to my house, y'all got to see something. He played the karate kid and he paused it right there and said, look at me, look at me, look at me, there I am, there I am. There I am. Look at me. There I am. There I am. There I am. And what I think God is saying to us today is so many of us come into the presence of God and we've done the exact same thing. We've said, look at me. Here I am. Bless me. It's about me. All lies on me. Here I am. Here I am. And God says, you're not even in the credits. It's not about you. If you do not carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. He called the crowd along with the disciples, both groups, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be one of these guys must deny themselves and take up their cross. You cannot be a disciple without denial. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and come after me. But the reality is, he, at least he gives you fair warning. At least he tells you ahead of time, this thing's going to cost you. I would hate to get into it, and I didn't read the back of the package. You know, sometimes you read the back of the, you can't even take medicine without considering the cost. You, you can't even take Benadryl without looking at the back. And it says, may cause rashes. You, you, you can. And I'm thankful that, that Jesus tells me, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me. I'm not even talking about my relationship with him. I'm talking about my relationship with other people. It's going to cost you. You must be willing to say, okay, here I am. 
One, one of the greatest disciple makers in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't a member of, he was not a member of the original 12. Paul gets saved along the way. Paul gets discipled. And then I believe Paul becomes one of the greatest disciple makers in the New Testament. One of his protégés is a young man named Timothy. Timothy follows him. Paul has a relationship. He would write letters like 1 and 2 Timothy to him some 10 or 12 years after they actually meet. But if you look at in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16, when Timothy, who's 17 or 18 years old, finds the apostle Paul, and there's an invitation for the apostle Paul to disciple Timothy, do you know what Acts chapter 16 says? The only way that Timothy could become a disciple disciple of Paul was to be circumcised all the men said ouch listen to me this isn't a baby in a hospital with Novocaine these are grown men with buck knives what am I saying in order for Timothy to become Paul's disciple he must be willing to be cut on to be a disciple to be discipled we must be willing to be cut on in the most sensitive areas of our lives. It's when you trust somebody other than yourself with a knife. We don't like that. I don't want nobody cutting on me. I'm 42. I'm a grown man. I know what you're thinking. I'm a grown woman. Some of you will even put an adjective between grown and woman. I'm a grown blank woman. You ain't telling me what to do. Don't tell me what to post. Don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me what's right or wrong. I know what's right. My dad told me. My culture told me. Until we have the ability or until we are willing to take the knife out of our hands and give it to someone else, you can't really be a disciple. That's good. You can clap. It's going to cost you. Have you considered the cost? Number two. Not only should disciples take on self-denial, number two, disciples posture themselves with repentance. Bless you. Repentance. Everybody say repentance. I know we don't like that word in church a whole lot anymore. Just do you. Just be you. God loves you just the way you are. God does love you just the way you are. But he loves you way too much to keep you that way too. Repentance. Repentance is not sorrow. It's not being sorry for something. I tell my kids all the time, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm like, yeah, but you, you, you did it yesterday. You did it two days ago. You're going to do it tomorrow. That's not, that's sorrow. That's, you need to Repent. Repent is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia means a change of mind. It means that I change the way that I even think about my sin. It doesn't mean that I'm never going to struggle with sin. I'm going to struggle with sin for the rest of my life. I'm a sinner. I fall short. I fall short daily, okay? I do. But what, what repentance does, it means that there's a change in the way that I think about that sin I turn my back on that sin, and even when I do fall short to that sin, at least now my thinking is that I hate that sin. Does that make sense? So, so that's what repentance is. It's a change in direction. It's a change in mind. It's a change of heart. The word is, is metanoia. You, you can't even be saved. You can't be a Christian 
without repentance. So if, if the only inkling of you understanding salvation is that you just prayed a prayer, but you've never repented, then let me just help you out. You're not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without repentance. You cannot come to the fullness of the knowledge of Christ without repentance. That's repenting of our sin, okay? So that happens at salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, yet now I'm happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by this. Why? Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. He's basically saying you can't be saved without repentance. That's what your repentance does. So obviously being a true disciple starts with repentance of sin. But how many know that Jesus always ups the ante? He does. Uh, uh, the Bible in, in the Old Testament says, um, uh, you shall not murder. Jesus takes it a step further. He goes, don't even have hate in your heart. Uh, the Bible in, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery. Jesus takes it a step further and says, don't even look at a woman lustfully. So, so Paul tells us, uh, you know, uh, what repentance is, that, that we should repent of our sin. But Jesus says, I want you to know that sometimes it's repenting for more than just sin. It's repenting for mindsets and ways of living. Are you tracking with me? Watch this. Here it is. Talking about becoming a disciple. He says, don't begin until you count the cost. And he tells us two scenarios. He tells one about uh, the builder that's going to build that assumes the cost. And he tells us one about the king that's going to war. And you go all the way to verse 33, if we can skip down there. He says, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up on everything that you own. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything that you own. Don't think that Jesus is talking about materialistic possessions. The insinuation here is that we all own some things other than sin that we must be willing to disown. Are you tracking with me? There's ideologies and mindsets, values and convictions and attitudes that in of themselves are not sinful, but they're not holy either. I must be willing to disown some of those things in order to own something brand new. Let me explain this. When I, got, when I became a Christian 22 years ago, I had my own set of values. I, I was lacking any conviction. You know what conviction is? Conviction is that thing that rises up on the inside of you. That as you get closer to Christ, as you get in his presence, it says, you know what? I don't know if me doing this really pleases God. Maybe I should rethink what I'm doing. So I had a lot of those moments early on as, as I was a young Christian. There, there was things that used to just fly out of my mouth. I, I cussed for 20 years. So the first time I was a Christian and I stubbed my toe or hit my, you know, my thumb with a hammer, some stuff came out of me. And, and then you start, man, I probably shouldn't say that. There was things I was putting into my body. If I could drink it or smoke it, it didn't matter what it was. If it made me feel better, I was going to do it. Some of those things I, I started thinking about, man, I probably, this probably isn't pleasing to God. Even the stuff I was watching with my eyes wasn't pleasing to God. Things I was putting into my ear. I remember I'd gone a couple years and I was loving God, but I had like these anger issues and I was struggling with some other areas of my life. And then one day I'm driving down the road and, and I'm listening to some just pornographic like rap music from the 90s. And I'm singing the songs and then wondering why I'm having struggles in my mind. And it just hit me that God was placing a conviction on the inside of me, I'm driving down the road. Y'all remember back in the day when we had like a six-disc changer? And it was like back in the, your trunk, you had to get out of your car to change the CDs. And then I had like this binder. It was all CDs. And there's like 200. 
I got so convicted by the Holy Spirit of what I was listening to that while I'm driving down the car, I, uh, down the road, I literally take every CD that I own and threw it out the window. I'm not asking you to do that. That's what the Holy Spirit told me to do. Okay. As we're doing it, I have a friend with me. He doesn't know Jesus. He's like, bro, what are you doing? I was like, bro, I'm convicted by the music I listen to because I ain't convicted. Stop the car. And so I did. He got every CD that I own. My, my point is, as you get closer to Jesus, there's some things that you have to unown in order to own something new. It's called convictions. And, and as a young Christian, I was continually adding stuff to my conviction list. And I'm just being real honest. As time went by, I became more and more comfortable. And when I became more comfortable, my conviction level went down and my justification level went up. That's why you have a lot of Christians who will justify shady areas of their life and say things like, it's not a big deal. And one day, about four years ago, the Holy Spirit asked me this, and I'm going to ask you this question too. Here's the question, and I really want you to think about it. When is the last time you added something to your conviction list? Think about it. We don't even talk about conviction anymore. We have to unown some kind of old ideas and mindsets and systems of thought, perspectives, value systems. Let me help you out. If your value system is more aligned with a political party than it is with the kingdom of God, who's discipling you? White person, black person. If our value system is more aligned with the pigmentation in my skin than it is with the crimson blood stain that was, was spilled for every person in this room, who is discipling us? Is it culture? What am I saying? Sometimes it's not what you own. It's what owns you. Hello. Sometimes we have to unfollow something in order to follow something else. We're all being discipled by something. You know what, you know what the word disciple really means? It means to follow as closely as you can. Some of us, Fox News is discipling you. CNN is discipling you. Okay, I'm moving on. <laughs> Number three. Disciples demonstrate love. The telltale sign of any disciple is always love. When, when, it, when a disciple is operating, when he or she is operating at full capacity... The result is always love. The posture is always love. They, they, they speak love. They post love. Hello. They demonstrate love. The proof of love is always demonstration. Let me prove this to you. How many of you in the room believe that God, God loves you? How do you know? How, how do you know? Because, because Pastor Jacob said it because pastor paul preached about it how do you how do you know that god loves you how do you really know that god loves you i'll tell you how i know 
That while I was a sinner, Christ demonstrated his love for me. While we were sinners, he died on the cross. See, the reason that I know that God loves me is because he demonstrated his love. Right? A demonstration is always louder than a declaration. And we can say we love people all the time, but it's not until you're put in a position where you have to demonstrate it. Jesus gets real specific about this. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I loved you. You must love one another. By this, everyone, you will know, know that you're my disciple if you love God. Is that what it says? No. People, don't want, people aren't going to know that you're a Christian or that you're a disciple by your love for God. It's by your love for other people. The proof that you're a disciple is not how much you love God. It's how much you love your brother who voted for a different candidate. We live in an age of cancel culture. I think we ought to cancel cancel culture. You know why? Because Jesus canceled your sin on the cross. We just cancel. We disagree with people. We just cancel them. Canceled. Canceled. Do you know what? I can disagree with you and not cancel you. I can disagree with you and not call you an idiot on Facebook. I can disagree with you and still demonstrate love towards you. Because that's what disciples do. And if I'm real honest, if I'm just being honest, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the church down the road. I'm talking, about the, I'm talking about the American church. When I look at the American church, I don't see demonstrations of love. I see opinions. I see us profess one thing and do another. And maybe the reason why there's a lack of love in the church is because there's a lack of disciples in the church. The result of discipleship is always, always love. A disciple will have the love for the following, a love for God. They should always love God. Yes, that is 100% true. That's when your convictions come and you're going to love God. You're going to change your ways. Okay. Number two, you should have a love for fellow disciples. Watch this. When Jesus called his disciples, he pulled a group of people together who otherwise had no business even being in the same room. On one hand, he had tax collectors who were entrenched in upholding the system. On the other hand, he had zealots who wanted to burn the same system down. Yet they were all disciples. He had old who were married and young who were kids. He had a doctor, a physician who was educated and fishermen who had no, no formal schooling whatsoever. And I'm saying that because discipleship, sometimes we think about discipleship, I, I got to connect with somebody like me. I got to find somebody who looks like me. I got to find somebody from my side of the, the hood. No, 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 listen to me. Discipleship is not about tribalism. It's about unity and love. It's about racial unity and love. Let me take it further, New Iberia. It's about generational unity and love. One of the things that's beautiful about this church, I love the worship team. Everybody looks like they're 20 on the front row. Everybody on the back row, they look a little older. <laughs> I love that. Why? Because both generations are needed. Old people, let me help you out. Stop looking at these young people, Sam. Why, why are the pants so tight? Skinny jeans and mochas and disciple them. They need you. Young people, quit dismissing the older generation. 
They have wisdom and experience. They've been married 40 years. You can't keep your boo for two weeks. Hello. All right. I'm closing. Isaac, help me out. And finally, fourth characteristic of a disciple. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. I've been so convicted lately. We live in a day and age where we promote celebrity pastors. As the significance of a shepherd is by how many sheep he has. I, I, I don't think the significance of a shepherd is by how many sheep he has. I think the significance of a shepherd is in how many sheep can actually hear his voice. And, and so we've secularized church and if we get the best musicians, if we get the best communicators, if we get the best systems and the best structures, then everybody comes to the church to see the show. And there's a problem with the show. is that the people on this side of the show become a performer. And the people on that side of the show become a spectator. And I don't think Jesus is pleased with either one. So forgive us for allowing in the American church the performance to take place to let you sit back and think, well, I'm just going to come and enjoy the show. That's not what church is about. There's mutual responsibility. You know what Ephesians says? It says that I'm called to be a pastor, not to preach to you. It's for the equipping of the saints. So you can go out and make disciples. And when Jesus wanted his church to grow, he didn't hire a consultant. He didn't find the best preachers. He said, give me 12 good old boys from New Iberia. And if they just go and do what I did for them, for 12 more people, and those 12 do it for 12, and those 12 do it for 12, this thing will be exponential. And the reason why you're here today is because that's what happened. Disciples make other disciples. Matthew 28, Jesus took the 11. He's talking to his disciples, the ones who embraced self-denial, the ones who left their nests, who left their father, the ones who repented. Peter repented for denying him three times. He, he took the ones. They weren't perfect, but they demonstrated love. And in verse 18, he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Disciples make disciples. He's talking to disciples. You can't make what you're not. 
How do I know that? Because I know some people that are a mess. And you know what they make? A mess. But disciples make disciples. Why? Because you reproduce what you are. I think it was John Maxwell said it a long time ago. He said, you can, you can teach me what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. I'm going to eventually rub off on you. It's like osmosis. You just catch it. And I love the example of Paul. I told you already that he was a, a disciple machine. And here's what he would tell guys like Timothy. Here's how he did it in 1 Corinthians. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Do what I do. See the Jesus in me and do that. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What's Paul saying? He says, as you're becoming a disciple, go and make other disciples. In this room, I'm going to give you three calls today. I'm, I'm closing. The first is a call to be a disciple. Remember, Jesus didn't delineate between Christian and disciple. The second you repent and you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you step out of the crowd into the process of discipleship. You're, you are a disciple. You don't have everything figured out. You're, you're step one on this journey. Now the way that you grow is to follow him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, that's the first call. You're saying, Pastor Nick, that's me. I need to become a disciple, a Christian. I understand it starts with repentance. I got to turn from my sin. If that's you, nobody's looking but me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, say, Pastor Nick, would you just pray for me? I want to be a disciple. Just Would you raise your hand with me today? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Many hands, many hands. Church, we're going to pray with these people, then I'm going to go to our second call. Can we all pray this together as people are coming into the kingdom? Would you say this with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I choose today to follow you as closely as I can. Lord, help me. Keep my eyes on you. If there's any areas that I must unfollow to follow you, Lord, show them to me now. Help me. Thank you for saving me. I repent of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Second group of people, there's some of you in here that, man, you, you've made that commitment. Maybe, maybe it was a long time ago, but you can honestly say, man, I've been sitting in church and I've come every week, but I've just kind of been part of the crowd and I've never been discipled. I've never had somebody take the knife out on me. I've never opened up my life and say, God, whatever it is that you need to cut away, cut away. How many would be bold enough to say that's you, that you're a Christian, that you're saved, but you have not been discipled? Would you just raise your hand very boldly? Thank you. Thank you. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Very high, very high, very high, very high. Everybody, if everybody just kind of look around, this is awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you to look around for a reason. Keep your hand up. Please don't be embarrassed. This is awesome. Now watch this. See their hands? Now watch this. The remainder of you, now a third of you who haven't raised your hand. That means this, that you became a disciple, you got discipled. Now guess what the third call is? Now let's make some disciples. 
So if, if some of you have not raised your hand, there's people that God has placed in your life, in this room, in your vein, in your network, in your neighborhood, that God wants you to go and do for them what someone else has done for you. Listen to me. As we step into a new year, we're, y'all, we're seven weeks away from 2021. You're going to be hearing a whole lot more about discipleship. You know what I love about discipleship? The result of discipleship is always transformation. Do you know what happens when we get a transformed church? Watch out. I'm telling you, revival's coming. Do you receive it? Do you receive it? Let me pray for you, then Pastor Sean's going to come and close. Father, we thank you today. God, we thank you. God, for your method. It's called discipleship. It's the way that you grew your church. It's the way that you grow individuals. And I thank you today, God, for those that are receiving your mandate. God, to become a disciple, to be discipled, and to make disciples. I pray you speak to every single one of those groups today. God, put specific people, God, in their minds and in their lives to help them with this process and journey. In Jesus' name, amen.